Welcome to Do Justice. I'm Steve Allred. It's hard to keep up with all the explosively controversial social and legal issues circulating in our world today, but today we're going to tackle some of the most recent Supreme Court cases from this blockbuster term. Cases dealing with God, prayer, guns, but mostly talking about the abortion issue. My guest today is Michael Peabody, an attorney, writer, and legal expert who has been a guest here on Do Justice before. Michael is also a conservative Christian who has written extensively about his pro-life, anti-abortion stance. But today he also talks about some of the concerns he has with the Supreme Court's case that dealt with abortion and the complexity of the abortion debate from a pragmatic standpoint. I always enjoy talking with Michael, and I'm looking forward to that. Before we get to the interview, let me share some thoughts of my own. First, I believe that respect for life, especially human life, is a foundational justice issue. And it's a moral and spiritual issue before it's even a political issue. And so that's why we're talking about it here today. When it comes to the political solutions offered by the political players in the abortion debate, I I don't find myself in complete agreement with either side. As I heard someone else put it, I'm neither celebrating nor lamenting the fall of Roe v. Wade because I see the actual solution to reducing abortions, which is a goal I have, to be more complex than merely outlawing abortions. Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to laws that outlaw abortions, that protect the unborn child. In fact, I would argue that Christians should care about all forms of life, including developing prenatal life and the life of the mother. I mean, we are all made in the image of God, and unborn children are being made fearfully and wonderfully, the Bible says. But shouldn't we also care about the life of that child once it's born, including protecting it from being slaughtered in a mass shooting in a country that has the highest per capita gun ownership in the world with virtually no uniform safeguards in place to restrict those guns from getting into the wrong hands? I mean, I have questions when people who are willing to enact laws to protect prenatal life are simultaneously unwilling to even consider enacting restrictions on guns that could prevent a mass shooting and protect school children from gun violence if it might somehow you know, infringe on their Second Amendment rights. And here are some other random but related questions to this debate that I have. What do we do when the life of the mother is endangered by the pregnancy? Some of the anti-abortion legislation now in place does not take this into consideration. And yet, many people of faith would agree that an abortion is not morally wrong in a situation where the mother's life is endangered. Here's another question. Are laws against abortion actually effective at stopping all abortions? And I think we have to agree the answer is no. Are they effective at reducing abortions? And I think we'd have to agree that most likely they are to some extent. However, will the lives of mothers who attempt unsafe, self-induced, or otherwise illegal abortions uh, be endangered now that some states will have laws outlawing most, if not all, abortions. And the history of pre-Roe v. Wade America tells us the answer is likely yes. Should we also look at the root causes that lead someone to not want to carry their baby to term? I think we should. A recent article in The Atlantic noted that Most people who seek abortion cite financial concerns, and women who have been denied access to abortion are more likely to be in poverty even years down the line, according to a recent 10-year study. So if we are going to 
mandate that a mother give birth to a baby they do not want or cannot afford, at the very least, should we not have a national consensus, as law professor Steve Vladek puts it, uh, about things like paid family leave, further expansion of Medicaid, more funding for child care, mandatory child support, and other ways to make it easier for those who are less well-off to raise their children? History shows us that illegal abortion was common before Roe v. Wade, and statistics indicate that denying women access to legal abortion does not necessarily prevent them from seeking or having abortions, but actually may even increase the likelihood that they're going to resort to an illegal abortion carried out under conditions that are unsafe to the mother, which leads me to the conclusion that American Christians who are advocating for anti-abortion legislation must also be willing to address the root causes that lead to an unwanted pregnancy. Otherwise, we as Christians may be revealing that we are more interested in symbolic victories than in real solutions. Michael Peabody, welcome back to Do Justice. Thank you for for joining us again. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and just for our listeners, uh, a reminder that that Michael Peabody is a, a an attorney here in California. He is also the president of Founders First Freedom, and that organization has a great website called religiousliberty.tv. It's still .tv, correct? That is correct. And and that if you want up to the minute almost at least up to the day, almost to the hour coverage of, you know, legal matters that relate to religious freedom, freedom of conscience, that kind of thing. Uh, religiousliberty.tv is your website. And he's got a great newsletter that he also emails out. So anyway, thank you, Michael, for being here today. Really excited to just talk with you about some of the recent big decisions uh, from the Supreme Court. Has it been a, I mean, it's been kind of just a normal uh, you know, term for the Supreme Court, hasn't it? Well, this term has been huge. <laughs> you know, all the stuff you're not supposed to talk about at dinner parties. You've got guns. You've got abortion. You've got prayer in schools. You've got major stuff that's that's happened, and and some things that aren't really surprising, but they are surprising. A lot of a lot of stuff going on with the court um, just in the last week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to just talk, yeah, about those three very. Um, you know, yes, controversial things, Um, God, and then we'll talk about guns and abortion a little bit. Um, First off, what are your thoughts, uh, just in general, on the Kennedy uh, v. Bremerton School District case? That was the case where the coach, the football coach, uh, up in Washington State was having uh, prayer after, you know, the game was finished and and so on and so forth. Um, And you know, from a religious freedom standpoint, when we think about prayer in, you know, the school context or, you know, as a, a, a employee of the school in this case who, who is, and of course, there's all this nuance that we could discuss, which we won't really get into today. But what, what's kind of your take on this whole thing? Do you think this is a good outcome here um, or are you kind of undecided or what are your thoughts? Well, you know, when I first heard about this case, I was picturing this big field in the middle of the night. A few lights around the edges, the players going home, and the coach walking out by himself and kneeling down to pray in the middle of the field. And I thought, you know what? It's it sounds okay. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Eventually, other players, you know, started joining him and inviting people from the other team, and it became a small gathering. Uh, but it was after the game, and when people were having conversations with families and other people, he was talking to God. So it seemed like a it's a little interesting. I mean, it's not something that everybody would do, even if they are Christian, but it seemed like an interesting way to exercise religious freedom. But as I reviewed the Supreme Court decision, if you take a look at it, and all the decisions, by the way, are available on the Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov, and you can read the decision. You can read what's called the syllabus at the beginning, and then you can read the majority opinion and concurring opinions from other judges who might agree in whole or in part or want to emphasize a certain thing. Then you can read the dissent. So I always recommend people take the opportunity and read it for themselves. But Justice Sotomayor actually posted in her dissent photos from the prayer ceremonies. And there were, they were pretty large gatherings of a lot of people. And there were actually cameras present from local media watching him have his prayers. It became a big thing because originally he had done it and he, I think he got suspended after doing it for three times. Then he went back and did it again. Um, it kind of reminds me of the, the story of Daniel. Every every day he would go and, and pray facing Jerusalem, open up a window and pray in the window. And so the detractors, the, the guys who didn't like him, um, got the king to pass a law that said, if, no, if people don't pray to you, or, or if people pray to anybody other than you for X number of days, they're going to be thrown into a lion's den. And sure enough, Daniel got caught doing that because they were watching for him to do it. Um, on the other hand, Daniel wasn't, you know, kind of coercing other people to join him in prayer. It wasn't about their religious freedom. Um, it was about his religious freedom. And in this case, there are some of the other players felt coerced to go along and pray. And if they didn't pray, then they were kind of on the outs with the team. So there's kind of a peer pressure, uh, component here in a way. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of peer, peer pressure. And, And so that kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I, Ultimately, I think the Supreme Court came to the right result with this, but I'm concerned about it undermining other freedom protections that people have. Because, you know, you've, you've worked as a pastor, you know that different groups within Christianity pray in very different ways, right? Mm-hmm. And you have Catholics who pray a different way. They pray to Mary or the saints. You've got Muslims, you've got Jew, Jewish people, you've got a lot of people who are going to have their own take on this. And so to create a situation in which they feel pressured to participate in a Christian prayer um, does create a little bit of a, a problem and a lot of coercion. So I am interested in how this decision is going to play out in other contexts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, I Years ago, they used to say, well, when, as long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in schools. And students have been traditionally leading the prayers among other students. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be okay. But when when teachers get involved or people in positions of authority, um, it, be, it can, can take on a coercive aspect sure. um, depending on how it's done. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my concern as well. So, um, and you know, the whole thing about prayer not being allowed in school, yeah, you're right. I mean, we've, I've let out in campus, um, Bible study prayer groups on public school campuses as a pastor, you know, you can have your Christian club on campus and whoever wants to come can come. So, 
there is school there, there is school prayer but the question is is it being um, you know sponsored by a teacher led out by a teacher is it something that that students have to participate in and if they don't they feel like they're left out so um, well and, and that kind of you know makes me uh, as you talk about you know how this case and the outcome of this uh, this decision may affect other freedoms it makes me think of the um, abortion case um, that was just decided, um, Dobbs uh, versus the uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization um, case, and big case. But before we actually talk about the case and its you know potential implications, um, you you sent out a newsletter a few maybe a week or two ago. I think it was before Dobbs actually was decided, and um, I thought it was interesting how you kind of juxtapose the arguments um, that are used for or against gun control with those those used for or against, um, you know, abortion, um, regulating abortion or whatever. And, um, you know, and I've, I've actually said this for years as well, is that, you know, I think both sides of this debate are kind of inconsistent in their arguments when you compare them in these two areas. Um and you kind of framed it as a supply-demand issue, um, I think. And you you noted that one side of the gun control bait, debate, and I'm going to quote here, will say that regulating the supply will not solve the root social and spiritual problems that led to the uptick in violence, and that to really achieve a safe society, they need to rebuild the nuclear family, uh, reintroduce spiritual values, require church attendance, and raise perfect children. And at the same time, you note that those same people will, and I'm quoting again, argue that the practice of abortion needs to be outlawed from the supply side, no exceptions for any reason, but many of these people are also against gun control because they say society needs to address several ills before gun crimes will decrease. Um, And uh, then you finish by saying, when it comes to guns and abortion, either there is a spiritual or social framework to address, or there is not, or perhaps there is both. I like that. Talk about that a little bit more. Well, it is a very interesting situation because... And um, I, it's anecdotally, I noticed that a lot of people who are against abortion tend to be very liberal when it comes to the availability of guns, mm-hmm. or liberal in the sense that there should be a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, you know, the way to um, to solve, you know, societal problems is you got to have a lot of, um, you know, guns out there to protect the good people. And they say that if you want to solve the problems of violence, because there's going to be violence, you need to pretty much redo society from bottom to top and have the things that you mentioned in it. Um, strong families, um, rebuilding a nuclear family, um, and they talk about mental health and things like that. Then on the abortion side, they say, oh, no, we just need to flat out ban abortion. And um, the um, social issues will will have to come after that. So mm-hmm. you, you pretty much ban the abortion, then you address the social issues. And it seems inconsistent to me. And I, I heard a statement the other day. It said, you know, you, you say you want to banning guns is the solution to, I mean, banning abortion is the solution to abortion, but banning guns is not the solution to gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seemed inconsistent to me. Either bans work or they don't work. And in the reality, it's the answer is somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I noticed that a lot of the people who are saying we need more gun, ch- we need to make sure the wrong people don't have the guns. 
So criminals shouldn't have the guns. Mm -hmm. And they really, you know, if you think about it, the type of solution of let's fix society um, is really, it's pretty invasive. It you is. Know, saying we want stronger nuclear families. We want to have more religion and stuff like that, more mm -hmm. spiritual values. Um, but the the idea of um, you know inculcating values like that in order to prevent the need for abortion, and then you have less abortion, um, seems to be a foreign concept to the same people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, as you were talking, it made me think about you know. Uh, I think regulating either is in some ways difficult. I mean, cause with guns, they're just everywhere, you know? And so at this point it's kind of hard to get the cat back in the bag, but you know, anyway, and we could discuss even more about how maybe those things have or haven't worked in the past, you know, when we've tried to do that. Uh, but I think there, there's a place for that. Right. And with abortion, I think there's a place for that too. But again, it's difficult because here is a, you know, unless you're going to put an ankle monitor on every woman or whatever kind of monitor to figure out if they're pregnant, right? You know, some are going to slip past you and some people are going to have their own, you know, self-induced abortions or whatever. And uh, so, but but does that mean that regulations don't work at all? I mean, no. I mean, obviously, or I shouldn't say obviously, it seems obvious to me that um, if you, uh, you know, work on the supply side of things, you can you know, reduce at least, you know, people's access to these things so that maybe there won't be as much. But let me ask you this, you, you're anti-abortion, um, or I don't know how you would want to, you know, describe yourself, but that's my understanding. You're, you are against abortion in general and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and yet from my take of some of your comments on the Dobbs case, I've seen on, you know, in your, um, email and, and, um, Twitter, that what are your thoughts about the actual case? Um, do you feel like this was the best way to get to the outcome? First of all, well, you know, it's it's, it's a it's such a hard issue mm -hmm. because you know people everybody says, "Oh, Roe v. Wade is so bad; we need to get rid of Roe v. Wade." A lot of people said that. Not mm -hmm. A lot of people said that, but then you say, "Well, okay, what do you want to do now?" And people don't really have an answer. I mean, how do you want to? Is there a way to punish people who seek abortions? Mm -hmm. Like, let's say you arrest a young woman going into a underground abortion clinic someplace, some hidden place. And so what do you do? Arrest her and put her in a jail for nine months and then force her to undergo a C-section? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not realistic. And, you know, or it could be realistic. I mean, I've, I've seen some weird reports coming out that, certain states want to investigate whether or not people have communicated concerning abortion mm -hmm. or whether or not they're pregnant. And then they want to see, track their pregnancies to see if they end. And if the pregnancy does not end in the live birth, they want to record exactly why. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's incredibly invasive. So my, my take on abortion is, is sort of like, it's a, it's not a good thing, but it's not, sure it's not something that you can prevent using state power without becoming incredibly invasive. Mm -hmm. And that's my concern. Um, because, and I, I don't, you know, I, I, I think the legal issues there, I don't think people should be forced to pay for it if they disagree with it through tax money and that type of thing. But the more I look at it, the more it seems like 
the idea of Roe where you had one month of abortion access. Then, I mean, one trimester, sorry, one trimester of abortion access, mm-hmm. and then the state has an increasing interest. Mm-hmm. Practically, it's, it's, it's not an, a legal type of solution. It's not like, you know, because in, in law, people try to find black and white bright lines. And the trimester system was sort of a compromise. It's sort of like, you know what, you have three months to figure this out after which the state is going to have an increasing interest in regulating it. Mm-hmm. And then um, Casey versus Planned Parenthood came along and said, well, you know, the state can regulate after viability. And people are like, well, what does viability mean? And then you have premature babies and you have this whole thing going on. Sure. Uh, as to where, where to draw that line. And then Mississippi comes along and says, you know what? You can have an abortion for pretty much any reason before 15 weeks. But after 15 weeks, no abortion at all for any reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was the case that was up in front of the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court did was they said, you know what? We're not going to even get into whether or not Mississippi is right. We're going to say every state can do their own thing when it comes to it. Mm-hmm. Now, that means a state like California could say, okay, it's completely wide open up until birth. Mm-hmm. And there's not going to be any limitation on it where, you know, and then you're going to have other states like, you know, Texas or now, you know, Mississippi or Louisiana, where they're going to completely block it um, at the beginning for any reason. And they may go to the point where they're outlawing Plan B medication or the morning after drug because they believe that there could have been a pregnancy. Um, and you're, I'm even seeing things like Clarence Thomas alluded to in his dissent, where people are trying, you know, talking theoretically about the possibility that contraception contraception could be outlawed and, in certain and, states. And let's talk about that for a minute because I, I think for our listeners who may not be um, as a legal scholar like you are, you know, who uh, may not understand how these cases have been decided in the past, you know, let's go back to like Griswold v. Connecticut, which was the contraception case that I think the first one, right? And yeah. and, and it was based on on what you know, because the, obviously the Constitution doesn't mention abortion, doesn't mention contraception, doesn't mention cell phones, doesn't mention car searches. I mean, all these things that we have, you know, kind of extracted principles and then applied to modern day stuff. And if you're a strict originalist or strict strict textualist or whatever, you know, some of these ideas might be anathema. But but there's this idea of right to privacy that was kind of you know. Rightly or wrongly, some people will argue, decided there. What walk us through a little bit of that and why you think, like Clarence Thomas, yeah, he's really against that. And um, do you think that's good or bad? That you know, are are those protections, this right to privacy, is that actually in the Constitution? Do you think? Well, I think you've hit on the main issue, and the primary reason why I'm concerned about this entire line of cases, and that is that the Bill of Rights which is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, which is the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that type of stuff. Those were originally not listed in the Constitution because they said if you don't, you know, the the Constitution was designed to limit the government, not to limit the people. Mm-hmm. But around 1791, Congress and the the founders realized that, you know, if we don't list some of these things, the they will be taken away by the government because they could see people the natural intent you know when you haven't had a government that's 
for freedom before. The natural tendency is to start stripping away freedoms in order to fix problems. Mm-hmm. And so they said, we need to pretty much make a huge allowance for freedom. And so they wrote the entire Bill of Rights, and I think you can print it out on a page or two of paper. It's very, very broad and very, very short. The, you know, the First Amendment is one sentence long mm-hmm. with a few different commas and stuff, different things listed in there, saying these are the rights you have, they are your rights, and the government can't take them away. And then, of course, after the Civil War, um, originally it was intended for Congress, then it was spread to the states through the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. What Clarence Thomas and uh, Justice Scalia said originally, you know, and Justice Thomas has sort of picked up that mantle, is that if something is not specifically indicated as being a right within the Bill of Rights that were that were put into place in 1791, then you don't get that right as a citizen. Mm-hmm. Your rights are limited by the Bill of Rights, not protected by the Bill of Rights. That's the sum total as opposed to just the, the beginning, the, the threshold, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, you know what? Yeah, the um, you know, right to gay marriage, the right to contraceptives, the right to abortion are not listed in that first Ten Amendments, therefore, they are not included. And therefore, the states can do whatever they want. And so you have some states are very expansive with rights. Some states are selective as to which ones they give and what they don't give. But it creates a situation where people are not wherever, depending on where you live in the country, you are going to have dramatically different rights than people in other parts of the country. And it will severely limit your your rights because un- the rights that aren't listed there are called unenumerated rights or unlisted rights, mm-hmm. and so the pure or the the um, originalist thinking that they have is that the original founders did not intend to give you those rights. Um, to me, that is a backwards way of thinking about it, and to me, that is incredibly concerning. And that's what bothers me the most about this entire line of cases is that. There's this idea that the federal government can take away rights that do not exist, that are not specifically listed in this document from 1791. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, we look back at cases or at laws that, you know, prohibited interracial marriage. Um, of course, that was overturned by the Supreme Court. And I, I haven't read Loving v. Virginia in a long time, but I, what was, what is your take on what was the, um, when was that case decided? I'm trying to remember in what the... I think it was 1967. Okay, so it was after Griswold, I think. Then. It was yeah. about six years before Roe versus Wade. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, in Loving versus Virginia, you had a, an interracial couple that wanted to get married in, in Virginia. <laughs> Thing yeah. you would say to us, it's in the name of the case. Mm-hmm. And at that time, interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia. And so... I think it, was, it may have been a couple that was married outside the state. They moved to Virginia and they wanted to have these rights and they were denied them. Mm-hmm. They're denied rights as a married couple because the um, idea that you can marry was not an enumerated right. Right. I mean, you know, that's a pretty basic thing. You would if think, you, yeah. You, you would think in life, like, what are the, what, what do you have the right to do? And one of them is to get married. Um, of course, you know, that when you're talking about same-sex marriage and people say, well, that's a different type of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, these are the, you know, the rights that people can have. And, you know, you can say, oh, I don't agree with these certain types of marriages. I don't think people should 
get married to people outside of their faith or, or whatever. Um, but there are certain things that the, the government is, or the government has a lot for. The Constitution allows for freedom and prohibits, pro, prohibits the government from stepping in to interfere with some of these relationships. And to go back to the abortion issue briefly, and then I want to ask you one more thing after this. Um, you know, you see this different, though, because you feel like the government should be able to regulate abortion, maybe not in the way that they, you know, not getting there by um, dismissing the right to privacy necessarily, but because, um, you know, a uh, unborn baby is is a human life. So therefore, the government has an interest in protecting that at least at some point, or do you believe it's at, you know, from the moment of conception onward, do you think there's any, you know, cause I mean, that was kind of the argument I think that Roe made is that, uh, and, and the cases in its line that, you know, the government's interest, um, increased as the, you know, the baby grew and, and, um, you know, came towards viability, et cetera. Do you, do you think that, you know, is that kind of your reason for thinking that abortion is something the government can regulate? Well, you know, um, if you look at it purely from my scientific viewpoint, let's just look at biology. If you're an embryologist studying this, when does life begin? Well, life begins, you know, if you see the, the movie, The Miracle of Life. Mm-hmm. It begins when the sperm touches the ovum, you end up with the beginning of a human life. Sure. And there's no magical point along that continuum at which it transforms into a human being. Uh, you know, you have a, a toddler and they become an adult. It doesn't, you know, you have people, it's the same person, they're just different. So, so, right. so the thing is, if you want to put a, draw a line where you say, well, you don't, at some point that is worth less than it is later on, then you would apply philosophy to that or you would apply religion to that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you want to take a strictly secular scientific cold view of it, it's a human life. And at some point, there's a balancing between the human life of the mother and the human life that is within her. And which one of those gets to win if there's a conflict between them? You know, and I've heard someone, you know, so I don't think there's... I don't have a problem with the concept of life begins at conception, but I guess what I've, I've heard someone put it is, is full personhood achieved at the same time? And you're kind of saying, well, you know, how do we know when it is, right? But, but I guess the follow-up question then is, well, if that's true, then we ought to, you know, prosecute abortion as we would other murders, shouldn't we? I mean, what's well, the argument for or against that? It becomes a real, you know, any one of these conversations is very, uncomfortable but sure there is a practical pragmatic aspect to it that can't be overlooked and it, it's sort of like you know you people say well you know if the, the baby's inside it's not breathing its own air you know mm-hmm. well it's, it's receiving air through the mother it's an independent genetically independent being and you could argue the same that a person on an iron lung or somebody who is oxygen reliant is not a human being, you know, mm-hmm. um, at some point there's, there's no, you know, and, um, I, I was trying to think of a way to, to describe the, the idea that becomes a human. It's sort of like, you know, in Catholic theology, you have the Eucharist and then you have the 
transubstantiation moment where it becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. And you, you know, if you're at a mass, you hear a priest will ring a bell or something, and then you know that became the blood, actual thing. Mm-hmm. There's no moment like that in in human development. There's no lump of clay that gets breathed into and becomes something that's with a beating heart. So the reality is when you're um, looking at the at these issues, then what is the balancing effect? What is the effect going to be on the mother? What is the effect going to be on the the developing child? And at some point there's there's an interest in it, but at some point that life within is is going to be up to the discretion of the mother, regardless of what whether or not the law what the law says about it. And it's not necessary to dehumanize the the developing fetus in order to reach that conclusion. Okay. Okay. Because um, right now it's, it seems like the argument people are like, well, that's not a human being, you know. And I, I don't think scientifically that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's something. It's it's not a it's not a different type of organism. It is a human. It's just who whose life will prevail. Sure. Well, yeah. And I, I don't disagree with the concept that it's a human. I just don't, you know, I wonder if, you know, even biblically, I think, you know, you see some biblical scholars who make the argument, uh, from Exodus uh, 21, I believe it is where, you know, which we're not going to get into all that probably today because it's a, that's a big discussion, but you know, there's, there's, there's two different, you know, kind of views on what's happening there. And some will argue that there is kind of this concept that life becomes more valuable, you know, uh, as it progresses. But so, you know, you know, just really briefly touching on that, there's, there's an issue of proof. If, uh, there's an altercation that occurs and a miscarriage happens after that, mm-hmm. what, what happens if, if a woman comes up later on and says, Hey, you know, I got kicked in the stomach by Joe and that's why I lost the baby. And so Joe gets hauled off and executed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no way to prove it. Um, so the so I think Exodus twenty twenty I mean Exodus twenty one was really a a verse about legal proof, being mm-hmm. able to establish that a, a murder occurred rather than simply it's not about the value of the of the child more mm-hmm. as much as it is a value about as 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 it is an analysis of who is legally liable for it and how do you prove it. So, you know, altogether, I, it seems to me that if you're someone who is a follower of Christ, um, you know, all life is, is valuable, right? And um, we ought to do everything we can. I mean, abortion is just, it, it's a horrible thing. I think when it comes down to the practical realities of it, and you've, you've kind of alluded to this, you know, there's sometimes we have to look at, you know, we have to be pragmatic and figure out, well, what's, what's going to be yeah. the best in this situation here? Um, we live in a fallen world. You know, I think there's hard choices people have to make if there are fetal abnormalities and and so on and so forth. Um, let me let me ask you one more question, Michael. I know your time is valuable here. I really appreciate you being here today. Well, let's talk real quick about religious liberty and abortion restrictions because um, you know, I mean, we're talking about this from a Christian perspective. There are others who do not share our you know religious or philosophical you know uh, ideas about life, maybe or about you know, abortion or whatever. Um, and, and so recently, uh, a synagogue, uh, in Florida, you've probably seen this one, uh, congregation 
Lador Vador of Boynton Beach um, uh, filed a lawsuit. I believe it was in uh, state court down there in Florida um, against the, I think it must have been, I'm trying to look here and see, I think it was against a Florida law, perhaps, yeah, that um, prohibits abortion. And they were basically saying that um, Jewish law um, holds that a mother's life is is paramount in considering whether pregnancy should be seen through to term. And so basically this idea that you can't have an abortion after a certain time under any circumstances or whatever the law might say is in conflict with their religious beliefs. How do you think that's going to play out just in general in the long term when we have, you know, challenges kind of to some of these state laws that are prohibiting abortion? Well, I think, you know, um, first of all, within Jewish thought, there's, there's a range of, of belief. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. There is a, a pro-life Jewish group that actually filed an amicus brief in the Dobbs case. It's really worth um, taking a look at mm-hmm. at the Supreme Court's website. Um, when it comes to free exercise of religion, the standard in place under Employment Division versus Smith is that if there's a nuclear, if there's a neutral, neutrally applicable law of general applicability, in other words, if there's a law that applies to everybody mm-hmm. evenly and it does not single out a, a religious group, then it then it can stand. Mm-hmm. And I think under Employment Division versus Smith, the synagogue in that case would lose the case. Mm-hmm. Um, because the law is equally applied to everybody, and it um, doesn't single out them by name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think it would apply there. I, I also think it's a, it's a hard argument to make that you have a that religion that um, abortion is some type of a sacrament. Well, and I think what they're saying though is is not so much that, but that if a mother's life, if a, if a law requires a mother's life to be sacrificed to protect, you know, a developing baby, that that, you know, essentially, you know, conflicts with their religious beliefs. And I think they're actually, they were challenging it under the Florida state constitution, as I recall. So we'll see how that goes, but yeah. yeah. And I think, I think there may be a better approach for them to take, mm-hmm. which would be more of a balancing of interest and actually, upholding the value of the mother's life mm-hmm. um, in terms of not not just abortion but saying look you know a person who is in a position of making such a decision when there's that much at risk has to be able to make that decision yeah um, it, it really goes back to the the idea of almost a declaration ready of um, declaration of of independence approach to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and developing a legal theory around that, um, which may have to ultimately come back to the right to privacy or a different, similar right. But mm-hmm. I think that's a stronger approach than a free exercise approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least under our current case law, yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you think our world is ready you know, for a post-Roe v. Wade um, environment? You know, are, we, what, are, are we ready for this and... If not, what do we do about it right now as, as people of faith? Well, I know we've only got a couple of minutes here. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, 
pre-Roe v. Wade was not what people imagined it was if, you're not, if they weren't around during that time. Mm-hmm. The reality was there was a ton of underground abortion taking place. There was, I think, 3,000 abortions a day in the U.S. estimated in places where it was otherwise illegal. Um, and one case in 1970 where a woman was incarcerated for seeking an abortion, and that made the news everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the reality was it was illegal, but it was not charged as a capital offense or a major felony like people think it's going to be now. I mean, right now, the idea is, well, you're going to have all these people being lined up and arrested and, you know, if it, Imagine if you perform abortions in a place where it's a felony and there's capital punishment, the doctor could theoretically be placed on death row as a result, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that happened before Roe, but I think now post-Roe, I have a feeling people are going to push for that because there's an extreme animus coming out of that situation. And it is, if you've had 50 years of, of emotional buildup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're going to see post row is going to be an attempt to really crack down in certain places and not everywhere, but it's almost on a revenge for the abortions that took place for the last 50 years. And so the Holocaust, as some people would, would characterize it, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it would be a, you know, I say, oh, this, all this, you know, it's happened for 50 years, millions of babies died and everything. So there's going to be a backlash trying in certain places where they are going to try to very much punish anybody who, participates in any abortion to the full extent of the law. And it's going to be a very strange time for the next couple of years as they sort this out. And it's not going to be like it was before Roe versus Wade, but it's going to take on its own characteristic. Michael Peabody, thanks so much for being here today and, and sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Hey, you made it all the way to the end. Good job. There's a special offer for those who endure to the end. I'll send you a copy of my new book. It's entitled Do Justice, The Case for Biblical Social Justice. I'll send it to you for no charge. Here's what you need to do to get one. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave the Do Justice podcast a review and tell us why you like it. Give it a good rating and then shoot us an email at dojusticenow at icloud.com. Dojusticenow at icloud.com. And tell us where you rated us and provide us with your name and mailing address and we'll send you a book. Or if you want to support the podcast, you can simply order a book at dojusticebooks.com. That's dojusticebooks with an S at the end, dot com. <laughs>